Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report uh, 30 of August 4, 2020. My name is Daniel Linhares. Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan. And uh, today we have two special guests with us. Uh, Roger. Roger Main, glad to be here. Hey, Jerry. Hi, Jerry Torreson. Pleasure. So, uh uh, today with those two special guests, of course, the, the directors for the Iowa State, VD, Iowa State uh, University VDL and University of Minnesota VDL, respectively. Um, just a little bit before we get uh, to, the, to, to the report, uh, just a little bit about the organization of this, of this recording. We are going to go through each page of the uh, Swine Disease Reporting System Report uh, 30 and uh, try to share the, uh, the most important uh, findings for this month, and then we're going to have uh, uh, questions for the, for the guests at the end of each page. So with that, we appreciate again the uh, opportunity to have uh, both Roger and Jerry with us and start asking uh, each of them and start with uh, Roger, then moving on with, uh, with, with Jerry, uh, this the Swine Disease Reporting System, of course, is a collaborative program where we have uh, uh, data being re- being shared on a on a daily basis uh, from those uh, VDLs and also from Kansas State and and, uh, and and South Dakota State University. And the question is, why do you guys participate? What's the importance of this? A mutual collaboration between VDLs to share, aggregate, and uh, and present to the swine industry uh, data on pathogen pathogen detection over time. Sure, I'll go ahead and just start, Daniel. And again, appreciate the opportunity to to participate today. And you know, from here, uh, this effort has been a, a project. I think, you know, Jerry and others that we started working on probably three or four years ago now initially with some of the very uh, kind of formative work that really set out to uh, help standard help uh, create enhance the standardization of our diagnostic data uh, between between laboratories so essentially there was a significant project that was a cooperatively cooperatively funded project between uh, um, Schick and the USDA that was built around uh, establishing really a full library of of what they call these LOINC codes and so on, uh, basically such that um, when we went to transmit information um, between laboratories, uh, that it essentially looked the same. And that's really a foundational element for enhancing uh, Mm the connectivity of diagnostic information, uh, both regionally and nationally. And uh, and that was an effort between, uh, you know, uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, South Dakota State University, Kansas State University, and our crowd here at Iowa State. And uh, it's been, from my perspective, it's really been a tremendous uh, collaboration that started really at the, at the ground level. And that then this SDRS uh, effort evolved from the capabilities that were created through that initial work. And from my view is it provides a way that, you know, you can aggregate data from uh, kind of this uh, core set of you know, Midwestern uh, veterinary diagnostic laboratories that provide services to the larger uh, percentage of the of the 
U.S. pork industry as a means of, of identifying and monitoring what I would call trends at a very macro level um, that mm-hmm. uh, was happening uh, in the, with the health of swine and particularly around the pathogens that we've chose to start with in monitoring. So from my perspective, it's been a good, uh, significant first step forward and uh, really appreciate all the collaboration amongst the labs and Daniel and Giovanni and Edison to your leadership for really helping put this uh, SDRS thing uh, together and move forward. Yeah, I would agree with everything Roger said. It, it, uh, once you get everything standardized and, and, and translatable in the same language, uh, you're all dressed up and now you have some place to go with it. And, and so we wanted to have it be a natural progression. And so Roger did a great job leading the team, uh, including Clemson, Michael, right, that uh, helped with a lot of the technical aspects. And um, I, I want to emphasize that it was no small feat to get all the coding standardized and that Iowa State also built a uh, a resource for the whole country then to come in and, and build upon for other species or for other diagnostic tests. And so really the heavy lifting was getting everything all done. And, and it really was a lot of work. I mean, we can't, uh, we can't minimize how much effort went into all of that uh, among all the different labs. And uh, especially at Iowa State uh, being the cornerstone of getting that all set up. Uh, and, and so now we have this uh, very robust system that's standardized and able to do uh, this sort of work where we can uh, provide the information in an aggregated way and be able to look at it in uh, many different ways, but especially in this aggregated report that pulls together the results from various labs in a way that is automated and, and so nobody has to fuss with a lot of, well, okay, there are a few things you have to fuss with behind the scenes always, mm-hmm. uh, but it's uh, it's a routine, robust, regular thing that uh, is is all set and, and uh, proceeds on a regular basis. And it's, uh, so, so why collaborate on this, I think was the original question, because there is power in bringing information together so that everybody sees the same thing at the same time. And so you could argue it's a great equalizer because rather than anybody having control over uh, mass quantities of information, it's available uh, all over for for everyone. And so uh, people can interpret the information how they see fit. And and I know everybody looks at the charts a little differently. I have a few key things I hone in on and, and want to make sure I check in and see. And so people can take it however they want to uh, and get the power of all the information in one spot, uh, using it how they see uh, fit. And so to me, that's the value of our participation in, in that our clients and others can benefit from all the data that uh, winds up in one pot. Yeah, and thanks again for the uh, uh, leadership from y- you both. And, and uh, I'm sure we can dis- say the same for, for Jane and Jamie from uh, uh, South Dakota and Kansas, respectively. It's uh, certainly an asset, I think, for, for the industry to have the opportunity to, to look at that data uh, in an aggregate in an aggregate fashion, right? And thanks to you guys for, for agreeing to, to share uh, and join that collaborative project. So, right, so moving on here to the, to the first page, which is the first, uh, actually the second page of the report after the introduction, 
Giovanni, what are the highlights for the purse page uh, this month? During July, the, there was a moderate decrease in the purse virus detection from 25.5% to 21% of the positive cases, and this happening in all age categories. Besides the decrease that was observed for the overall detection, there was uh, some signals for observed detection of PERS virus above three standard deviation for state-specific baselines for Minnesota, Missouri, and Indiana. And the advisory group pointed out that the detection of PERS virus during this time of the year It's likely to be associated with monitoring and constant testing of herds that are seeking virus elimination. And so these late winter spring breaks continue to be testing positive and these pigs continue to go for the nursery finishing sites. But at the same time, the advisory uh, group uh, pointed that this, at this time of the year, we are expecting to see a more intense decrease in pers virus detection than the observed during uh, colder months. All right. And uh, so going back to our guests here, in your, in your opinion, why? what, what are the, the benefits of monitoring an endemic disease such as PERS virus? Everybody know that that's around. Why, why monitor? Why get that data across the VDLs and, and share? We'll start with Jerry on that one. Yeah, why indeed? Um, you have to you have to look at the the big dog, and so this obviously was the first one that was monitored, and and is uh, obviously the one that gets a lot of attention because it is uh, such a big deal for industry. It, it has major impacts on on pig numbers, and and so um, how I look at this, uh, I tend to look first at at the, the your uh, trend analysis, and and so I look at the the blue wave and, and see if we're tracking above or below sort of the predicted level. And uh, that's a really important indicator of how we're doing. Uh, I do want to throw out my eternal disclaimer for using veterinary diagnostic lab data. However, uh, this is somewhat a denominator free number. And, and mm -hmm. so it's, it's an imperfect estimate of what exactly is going on. So having said that, it's still a very useful tool uh, because we do see these trends emerging over time and we have the benefit of seeing uh, the, the historical data and, and we can look back and say, yep, I remember that. That was a real thing. And so that gives us more confidence that as we're proceeding forward and looking at the new numbers, that it probably means something. Um, and so I look at the trend line, see where it is uh, compared to the fit line and, uh, again, uh, see that it, it matches with the expectations. So I have to, I, I'm, I'm at Minnesota, I have to put a little plug. We also have another tool, the, the Morrison Swine Health Monitoring Program, and so that's sort of the complementary piece. With, it's a voluntary uh, user-furnished data set, and so it doesn't come from the diagnostic labs. It's self-reporting from the producers, and so mm -hmm. we balance one against the other to say, do these stories jive? Are, are they in sync? Uh, and I think uh, for those of you who are, are participants or get the report there, you see a similar thing happening. And so that's the other thing I do is I look at this trend line and I compare it against what's happening in, in the MSHIMP report. The other thing I look at in particular uh, is just the testing numbers. Are people continuing to test? 
You know, we had an awful lot of PED testing. Uh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead to a different report, but that's fine. Uh, when uh, when there was substantial federal support for testing, there was an awful lot of testing, and some of that uh, declined, obviously, as as uh, external support diminished, and so you find out what the real interest is where people are willing to pay their own money to do this surveillance uh, or to do diagnostic testing. And uh, as was mentioned by the advisory group, a lot of the testing is routine surveillance. Um, one, one concern I have, and I've expressed this, I guess, before, when we're looking at a lot of this testing, especially for PERS, there's some dilution of the effect of clinical cases because we do so much surveillance testing. And so it becomes uh, a less sensitive indication of what's going on clinically. And, and we just all have to factor that in when we're looking at these charts because a great proportion of the testing is people monitoring routinely. Uh, and, you know, the, the fine adjust knob might not be there initially, uh, because of this this sort of uh, big uh, buffer of of all the routine surveillance, so uh, I guess that's a general overview of how I look mm-hmm. at these charts generally, and, and some specifics for this month. Thank you, Roger. Yeah, I would uh, jump on that. I, I think to me, one of the really uh, uh, interesting pieces that's come out of this has been the uh, Jerry mentioned it, but is this on the this using these seasonality uh, prediction charts um, and and maybe Daniel you or Giovanni could explain that further about the methodology that you you know you've done to to pull that together but I think it's been I think that is very informative as Jerry mentioned to see where we are as compared to year over year or as as maybe predicted by past year's performance. And also, uh, he mentioned, too, that linkage between the, the Morrison Swine Health Report data, which is really uh, that status, you know, uh, self-reported status level information as it relates to sow farms and how that relates back to this, uh, which is just pure testing-based uh, detection. And I think, uh, by and large, they've, if you look at them, they've really fit pretty, pretty well. And, and, Daniel, you may go into some of the work that I know you've, you know, worked closely with CSER some back and forth about maybe how one predicts the other. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's been a, a great effort to pull this together. And I think very complimentary of the, of the Morrison, the Morrison report. Um, and, and to me, a key part of this is, um, I mean, at a very macro level at an industry wide level is, you know, and some of this is like, are we making progress in our control of some of these diseases or not? Um, I think that's been uh, it's very it, it to me the combination of both of this report and the Morrison report have done a tremendous job at that um, because it gets it out beyond the framework of what any individual producer may be seeing in their particular operation area or region and say how does what they're seeing and experiencing compared to what's happening overall and so I think I think these reports. Um, meaning the the SDRS and the Morrison report collectively, I think have really, from my perspective, probably been, you know, the first time outside of, you know, back in when we had a um, a national or or a state level elimination effort underway, 
the first time where we have some some reasonable sense that we're pulling all this data together. And it's not perfect, uh, but I think it gives you a general sense of, of what's happening uh, across the country. And so that I, I think that's uh, that's been a really great thing. Uh, you, you, I think you both talked about the the value of having a understanding the pattern of disease or or pathogen detection. In this case, it's just a purge detection. And once we understand the pattern and and how the pattern um, behaves over time, right, with the seasonality and everything, and by age age groups and by specimens, once you understand that pattern, that allows to to scan with the algorithms. Roger was, was uh, referring to that. And uh, to, to ask the question, has uh, is there anything anything significant happening in terms of increased or decreased detection that you should uh, be expecting for this time of the year, for this state, for this age group, so on and so forth, right? It's not like you guys said, gonna uh, uh, dive into what are the reasons of that uh, increased or decreased detection, but at least gonna uh, help people understand that they should have. Uh, be talking about that right and understand what's going on behind behind the scenes right um, all right so moving on here to the to the page four of the sorry page three of the report Giovanni is the is about detection of RNA of enteric coronaviruses by PCR uh, PD Delta and TGE what are the highlights of this page in this month uh, Giovanni well for July the detection of uh, all of the three agents was very low the, there was a decreased detection observed for PD, Delta coronavirus, TG was not detected. And we did challenge our advisory group to point out what were their thoughts on potential measures that could be applied to minimize the increased detection of these agents at the colder months that are occurring in the second half of the year. And the advisory group listed out actions that include like the continued application of hygiene practices in the farms, clear disinfecting, the uh, uh, clear definition of the clean and dirty lines for the trucks, staggered uh, loading in the winter market barns, wash disinfect trailers from the marketing peaks when moving animals to the packing plants, the trucks, uh, the drivers from the truck should stay in the cab, and whenever possible, avoid intentional exposure of the placement guilt with the uh, life virus. And, of course, complying with biosecurity practices in south farms and improve it in winter-finished barns. And usage of scientific-validated uh, feed mitigants. All right. And so, yeah, we always uh, like to hear what our advisory group uh, uh, thought about those, pattern, those uh, findings for the report, reminding that the advisory group is a is a group of uh, veterinarians and producers spread out across the the U.S. from east to west to south, and so kind of get their perspective of what what are their field, what are they hear, what do they hear, what do they see about uh, uh, those those diseases. Uh, so, question question to our guests: How how could the SDRS data, what we're seeing or discussing here now, could have helped the swine industry? In the PD outbreak back in 2000, 2013, right? Different way to ask that is how can this uh, system help uh, with uh, upcoming or emerging diseases in the in the future? Um, Jerry, start with you on that. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And, and obviously, um, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to build a, a fire truck when the fire is raging. And so I think the key point is that you've, you've got this infrastructure that's established. Uh, I don't want to minimize the amount of work that goes into developing a new test if there's a new disease, but really that's the least of it when it comes to all the infrastructure required to have a, a common reporting mechanism. And so um, the, you know, in the PED example, people had tests up and running very quickly and uh, there wasn't a place to centralize the information for everybody to really get a good picture of what was going on initially. And so this is uh, a good investment in preparedness uh, and uh, is a valuable tool for um, just being ready. Um, and uh, it, it, uh, Roger, you can talk more about whether or not it's a model for USDA and, and the laboratory network through NALM for uh, how, how future reporting might look, but uh, just suffice it to say that uh, having everything standardized and having the ability to add new standardized codes is, is a big deal. Uh, I, would, I do want to just deviate a little bit back uh, to uh, this month's report and the value of the advisory group just for a second. So I really like the fact that they said, uh, yeah, you know, we, we see this cyclical seasonal thing. Um, so what? What do we do about it? And it, it reminds me a little bit of when I was in practice, we had somebody come in with a major pharmaceutical company who had just left the auto industry. And we were going through kind of a chalk talk thing. And we pointed out that there's, I don't remember exactly what the number was back then, maybe a 20% swing in the number of pigs uh, that are available in the fall versus the spring and, and, you know, just the, the summer months and the price differences. And, and he said, wait a minute, stop right there. You mean there's a 20% swing in the number of pigs that are marketed depending on the season of the year. And, and we were just like, yeah, of course, everybody knows that. And he said, how does your industry manage that? And, and well, we just know what happens every year. And he said, well, isn't there anything you can do about it? Well, this month, the advisory group said, well, isn't there something we can do about it? Because we see this seasonality and, and it's like, you know, kind of a bee slap. Yeah, maybe we, maybe we should do things differently. Okay. I'm oversimplifying and everybody already knows. And, and we try to do all that, but this is, you know, back to what Roger was saying before, this is our report card staring us in the face, or Daniel was saying that. It's our report card that says, yeah, why do we put up with this seasonal difference? And, and is it good? And is there anything we can do about it? So seeing it, uh, you know, most people digest information better in a visual format. And, and so the strength of this is that it's undeniable that things are more severe in the wintertime with these coronaviruses and Maybe there are things that we can do to influence that. So enough of my soapbox. Yeah. Yeah, I would just add, you know, Daniel and the Giovanni too is, I mean, the, the, the predictability is, this, I mean, on a macro level is astounding. You know, if you look at your graphs and what you're predicting versus actual, it's like, wow, can anything guess that well? And so it's just, it's just from my perspective, and like, like Jerry mentioned, it's just illustrating how our system as a whole, 
of is uh, is uh, performing from a disease standpoint as far as what's out there. And uh, I, and I would have, would have, and I don't know if you got any feedback from uh, Daniel from the advisory board of anything. I also thought it might be interesting to know as we go through this, because we've had obviously with a very uh, significant and substantial, you know, related uh, disruptions that, you know, have been experienced in the pork industry this, this past number of months associated with the pandemic, you know, if that would have had any, you know, impact on things going on in and around slaughter or whatever. But so I think it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see if that, if there's anything that, that develops or is observed as we go, you know, into the fall from that. Um, but it sure looks like to me, it's as it relates to PDV is that the system is performing now. It has the last few years um, uh, very, very similarly. And then the other thing I think that's very, you know, has come out of this and early on, right, was observed with the, on the back end of the PDV pandemic was, uh, you know, this thing about TGE and, and, uh, what's happened there is, 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 it's definitely its own story in its own right and, uh, and may present as an opportunity. And, and back to your question about, well, how, you know, if you had this in place, you know, would it mattered or what would have made a difference at all in the PDV outbreak? And, um, actually a lot of this work, um, spawned out of the response to PDV. And if mm-hmm. those who were around during, you know, and working in the space during that time, you know, it was started in the spring of 2013. And that's kind of what started to happen is, you know, it, but it, it was kind of on a on the fly uh, ad hoc basis is to say, well, let's start uh, working together, putting case count summaries together, just uh, case. I don't know if it was tested that time. I think it was just case counts, meaning how many positive cases for this, for the PDV already having by week, and then trying to collate those across the laboratories, and that was that was an effort that was started in around that time, and I, I think there's just been a lot of things that came off, off the PDV that, and our response to that that led to you know this type of work, and uh, and uh, but today's world would be we're because of that work we're in a lot better position to have a seamless platform where that information could flow into. Uh, rather than kind of an ad hoc, everybody pull their spreadsheet together and then let's put them together type of thing. Mm-hmm. Just a clarification. We said that the TGE thing that happened around PED was that the number of tests, the number of cases submitted for testing for TGE uh, increased significantly, uh, and they all tested negative, of course. And so that was a good sign, right? The increased number of, of cases being submitted for enteric disease that was testing negative, well, guess what? It, it it was a different enteric agent g- coming in, which which was PED, right? So by monitoring TG closely at that time, could there, that could have been some some signals that something was emerging. And you were talking about the the uh, coronavirus, uh, sorry, the the COVID nineteen, uh, 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 sorry, comments from the advisory group about the coronavirus and how that may have affected tests. Right or test results over time, and so that brings a good transition for the, to, to the next page, the mycoplasma page. And uh, Giovanni, uh, you want to take it from here? Yeah, that, that's correct. When you look for the mycoplasma hormone detection, the number of cases tested it's decreasing in the last few months, and the advisory group did highlight that for back to us that this decreasing number of cases tested for mycoplasma hormone 
It's like a consequence of the latest most issues faced on the market animals. So systems that are looking for eliminate the agents or are negative continue to test, but other ones have taken off some of these testing for detect mycoplasma harmony. Mm-hmm. So, Roger, Jerry, any any additional comment, question uh, on the on this page talking about mycoplasma detection over time, or? No, I I think the one thing, and uh, it kind of goes back to one thing that was discussed before or earlier was uh, that uh, about the dilution. Like, so this data that we're looking at here is is PCR data. Mm-hmm. on all cases, submissions, on all, all types of submissions, um, both surveillance-based as well as, um, you know, sick animal-type cases. And um, the and I think Jerry mentioned it before that uh, because in uh, swine medicine, you know, there's a lot of proactive surveillance that's occurring for uh, demonstration of freedom, system-level monitoring that's going on, um, those so from a pure test number standpoint, those really dwarf, you know, the the, the numbers as it relates to uh, what I would consider sick animal, purely sick animal type uh, case emissions. And so, and maybe Giovanni or Daniel, you want to talk about that, but I think there has been some effort as well that's uh, made an effort to say, well, this tool is for looking at macro level trends in, in a pathogen level detection over time. And then, but that's a different question than saying, well, what about the sick animals? What about our sick animal cases? Maybe we look at those more in, in isolation. And I think sometimes that provides a better feel for, um, uh, you know, for the, at least for the, the submissions that are the animals that are being sent to the laboratory. Why are these animals sick? You know? And so I think that's been a good uh, complementation or complement effort uh, as, as it relates to the, this pathogen level detection data from SDRS. Right. And it, it's, uh, so we have the advantage that the lab, we can dig into it a little bit and I haven't really looked very hard at, at what's been going on with the mycoplasma PCR testing, but, but I do remember a couple of years ago when uh, we had a pretty significant drop off in mycoplasma serology. And I thought, Oh, what's going on? Do people not care about mycoplasma? Obviously they did. And, and it has to do with transitioning to other, testing modalities, and so the uh, processing fluid and, and lesser, uh, well, oral fluid testing as well, uh, changed how people were testing, and so mm-hmm. um, people have become more efficient as well and, and can do more with less testing as we become more sophisticated in understanding what the best sampling frames and testing protocols are, and so... I'm not discounting that it could be the market forces that are dropping our PCR testing. And some of it can be that people have figured out they can learn a lot from 10 instead of 30. And and we don't want to underestimate that impact as well. Yeah. And in the, uh, regarding this question of when we talk about this pathogen detection by PCR and what's monitoring, what's, What's actually case coming from uh, from disease pigs? Um, of course, just looking at the PCR result and the in the submission form data, it's not possible to to talk about if it's if that PCR was from a, a monitoring or or disease case. But uh, there are some assumptions that we can make, and in the 
in the dashboards that are available online through the report, there is an option to get look at the data only from those cases where there is tissue, right, versus uh, oral fluid only or some of those sample types that are usually used for, for monitoring. But so, again, is it going to say, is it disease, is it not? Well, the, uh, not necessarily, but there are some assumptions that you can look at the, again, go back to the, what's, what's expected for this, this type of the year, this sample type, this age group, and, uh, make some educated, uh, questions, uh, to, to further, uh, investigate as needed. To really talk about disease, that's why it's another good transition here. The last page of the report is a pilot program that we're, uh, 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 working with uh, data from Iowa State VDL and their diagnosticians where they use a, a diagnostic codes and that's the uh, the page where that we call the, dis- the disease diagnosis reports. So that's beyond just a PCR detection. That's what the diagnostician come up with a conclusion based on the tissues, based on all the, the, the other tests that were done. And so the diagnostician will will... We'll, we'll conclude that was a purse case, that was a mycoplasma case, that was uh, whatever else. And so, Giovanni, what are the take-homes for this disease diagnosis, the disease diagnosis page this month? Well, during uh, June and July, the number of diagnoses for uh, respiratory, digestive, and neurological uh, diagnosis was within the expected. We had an uh, increase in number of diagnoses for coccidiosis under the digestive system. But that was is not a a lot of cases, so that has a, a signal that comes out, and we will continue to monitor closely this uh, agent. And between June 21st and 27th was an increase in number of musculoskeletal diagnoses, and the most frequent agents diagnosed are Streptococcus and Mycoplasma hyacinovium. During July 2012 uh, to 18. There was increased number of diagnoses for the urogenital system. And here we have the reproductive diagnosis together. Mm-hmm. And the most frequent agent under this system was PERS virus. So quite a few uh, small signals and not that was very expressive. All right. And so that uh, brings us to the next question to our guests, starting with you, you there, uh, Roger. Um, so this section, again, this is about disease diagnosis, right, which is beyond pathogen detection. De- detection. So reporting this is, is a step forward than, uh, compared to detecting PCR results only. Anyways, going forward, how do, how, how do we envision further strengthening this communication between the practitioner and the diagnostician so that we can improve the ability to communicate what VDLs or the VDL team is finding to help producers further understand disease activity in the field? Yeah, I think I think the 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 efforts that have been around, um, say, trying to pull out what we just broadly call sick animal cases, right, wrong, or indifferent, and we we uh, uh, probably the only way really we have a clean quasi clean way at the laboratory to do that. It's kind of like reason for test, and uh, and the best way we can do that in a broad cut today is is where they're tissues submitted, meaning that somebody performed a necropsy on an animal uh, in the field or submitted live animals for necropsy because there was a, uh, a clinical illness being evaluated. And so that's how we kind of get this into this bucket. And then 
um, our diagnosticians have really, I think, worked together really, really well to uh, say, how do we better uh, and more consistently put a categorical, a set of categorical data associated with every tissue-based case? And that is the, the outcome of those categorical data um, is what's, you know, being shown here in your, you know, your disease diagnosis. And so I think that, that, that creates a decent picture. It's not obviously any diag- diagnostic data is biased and there's limitations. I think Jerry mentioned that before for sure. But I think it definitely points you in a direction to say which of the pathogens out there for these different types of diseases or syndromes mm-hmm. um, are causing the most clinical problems, you know. And uh, if you look on the respiratory side, it's like, yep. Persian and there's a lot of Persian influenza out there, you know, and those, uh, those unquestionably are, are, uh, are, uh, are playing a significant role in everything else associated with respiratory diseases of swine. So I, I think it's, I think it's been a tremendous step and we'll look forward to continue to improve as those codes are more broadly used that we get the information, make it more broadly available and summarized. Uh, for what's going on as, as a whole and how people, what people are seeing in their own operation. I just see that as being an, a natural evolution of trying to create more value in, in knowledge, uh, fact-based information about um, what's happening in my herd. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and more broadly across, um, you know, the greater U.S. pork industry type thing. Yeah, I, I uh, congratulate Iowa State for having the discipline to do that. Uh, there was a time when we had that uh, well-established, and and part of the challenge is standardization, and standardization within labs is no small feat. Uh, I remember when, uh, this is a number of years ago, every kind of young pig diagnosis from one diagnostician happened to be coccidiosis, whether that was the case, the case or not, but it was a convenient, you know, it was, it was the hook where the hat wound up. And, and so uh, not to make light of it, it, it is a real challenge. So the standardization within labs is the first step. Standardization among labs is, is another uh, uh, hard task. Uh, and I guess the, one of the basic questions is how many decimal places do you have to be right out to where it's okay is PERS involved is that the primary or not and and so those are things going forward that we'll have to wrestle with and and not let uh, the the precision get in the way of the the accuracy if that is a way to formulate the the phrase and so um, it's it is helpful it's a big deal and it's it's pretty hard and, and uh, so I think there are opportunities for that and uh, Iowa State's made a, a good step forward in, in getting that hopefully as standardized as it needs to be and uh, see where it goes. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, it's kind of like you don't let – it's been a – this stuff is – it's not perfect, you know, uh, but don't let perfect stand in the way of progress type of thing. I think in a, in a big – you don't want to get down to like, well, is every individual case is it categorized just the same amongst people because I don't think that's possible. Um, but the idea is you're close, and I think in, a, in an aggregate form, it's like people are doing their best they can. Uh, it definitely, I think, provides a good macro-level view of, what, of what's happening and what's causing, in this case, what's causing pigs to get sick uh, in, our, in our industry and within uh-huh. 
each individual uh, system's operations. But I think kind of that point about don't let perfect get in the way of the progress is, is, is a big thing. And like the other ones, the one of the benefits is uh, uh, over time as the it is established what are the patterns for each syndrome, right? The respiratory, enteric, uh, and so on. It's uh, you know how, about how much, uh, how many cases you expect being associated with each of those pathogens, and if there is one that's uh, that's on the rise. Uh, you you could start asking questions. Hey, what's going on? And then you ask the question: Is it a specific diagnostician? Is it a specific production system that's that's doing some uh, looking with closer closer eyes to a specific pathogen because of a control elimination program, right? So again, it at least ask uh, let us uh, help people understand what are the questions they they should be uh, looking looking deeper, right? Uh, and so happy to be helping uh, people with that. So with that, uh, that those were the, the questions we had here. We, the, the final final questions for you guys is uh, any any closing closing thoughts, uh, comments. I did want to go back to 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 Jerry when he talked about the M Shimp, the Morrison Swine Health Monitoring Program. Uh, we also see the great benefit of those two programs being uh, close and complementary to each other. Right. In fact, uh, Cesar Corzo, the PI for the MSHIMP, he's he serves as one of the advisory uh, members for for this project here. So we are always exchanging data with him and say, hey, we're we're seeing this activity spiked activity in, in PERS or, or PD. Are you guys seeing the same? So we we keep a a, a close kind of keep it, keep in touch to kind of so that both programs can uh, keep helping the industry understanding the. The disease activity over over time. So, with that, what are your closing thoughts on on this program? I guess I'll start. I'll let Roger wrap it up. Um, the uh, The real strength of it is that it, so both for MCHAMP and for SDRS is the collaboration that allows people to again get get all the information out in front of them. It, so everybody sees it sees the same information at the same time and can make whatever decisions they need to make fully informed with, again, knowing the limitations and, and all the, the caveats. Uh, but we've got a lot of really smart people that fortunately have the spirit and the ability to work together and allow us to share information and they are the beneficiaries. So I, uh, I, I give my hats off to Schick for the support they've given and, and USDA along the way as well. And, and, and a lot of work to get to this point where it really is useful information as long as people appreciate the limitations and mm -hmm. uh, make good informed decisions. And, and so uh, that would be kind of my wrap up that uh, mm -hmm. people working together can do pretty cool stuff. And I would just say my perspective, I, I just think uh, it's, it's been a great thing of the different entities coming together to try to, um, you know, bring information from a lot of different sources together in a common place that hopefully it provides a platform to do some uh, common good. Uh, and I think that from my perspective, I think we're, you know, a lot of this work, it also from, I think there was a, PDD helped spawn a lot of interest in this area. 
And from my perspective, I think we're very early on. I think we're breaking boulders, Mm -hmm. but I think we're laying a solid foundation. And I'm sure that as we, uh, if we're sitting here uh, uh, five years from today and we look back to where we are right now, we're going to say, wow, that was fairly uh, rudimentary, but it was a great start. And so I feel like this has been uh, the right people, the right time building on, on a lot of the great work. And I go back to, you know, I really can't say enough about Bob's efforts to put the, that M-ship thing together. Cause that was, a, there's a lot of that. It's all in the same spirit of what we're trying to get done here. And, uh, and I just think it has an, a lot of opportunity as we go forward, we reserve the right to become uh, smarter and hopefully a little more proficient, you know, at what we're doing um, uh, really across the board. And, uh, and I think the data is, is unquestionably a key part of that to be able to, you know, quantitatively assess and measure and predict and hopefully be able to measure progress. Um, and maybe someday with uh, not as worried about seasonal trends, but progress. So anyway, mm-hmm. with that, that's, that's all I had, Daniel. Appreciate the opportunity to participate. No, thank you very much. That's all about we had for today. We really appreciate you, you both taking the time for, for this discussion today. And of course, all the support and guidance, guidance on the, on the swine disease reporting system program. Uh, with that, thank you again and have a good time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Daniel. Well, the time's been moving slow.